Let us pray for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Blessed are you, holy God. When you said, let there be light, there was light, and it was good. When your people fled from oppression, you led them with a pillar of fire. In Jesus Christ, your light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Blessed are you, God of light. Shine in our lives with the light of Christ, that we might give you praise through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, the word of the Lord. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is the gospel of the Lord. those of you who have asked, the surgery uh, went well. It's been almost two weeks. They completely disassembled and reassembled my nose, specifically the insides. And I am actually uh, breathing through both nostrils for the first time in a couple decades. So praise the Lord. And don't bump my nose. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are times when, as, as Christians even, even as a, a pastor, where I have to ask myself, do I really believe uh, what the Bible says? Do I really believe in God? And if I do believe he's really there, am I believing him as he actually is, or am I making up a God in my own heart? Uh, you know, Calvin said we are idol factories. We are prone to, to, to having been made in God's image. We are prone to try to return the favor and make God in our, our own image. And so uh, they're, they're something we all have to deal with is if God is really there, we have to deal with him. We have to deal with him as he actually is, as he reveals himself, and not as we might want him to reveal himself. And so we're going to look at a passage as we, as we begin a study of passages from, from the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4 where, where Moses recounts to the Israelites, recounts to us as God's people, who this God is and what he has done and what it means that we might walk in covenant relationship with him. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 15 to 24, and then verses 33 to 36. If you want to follow in the Pew Bible, we're on page 280, or you can just follow along as I read off the screen. This is the word of God. Moses says, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's another name for Mount Sinai, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an idol of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. 
And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. So be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Picking it up in verse 33. He continues, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you. Hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. This is God's word. So what is God saying here? What God is saying is this. He's saying, I am a consuming fire, and you have to deal with me. It's verse 24, Moses says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, is a consuming fire. In verse 36, he says, on earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. God was there among his people, and he presented himself to us as a consuming fire. So what does that mean? means a couple of things. First, that means, if you think about fire, uh, understand fire is something that is incredibly beautiful to look at. Uh, Fire brings light in the midst of our darkness. It gives life-giving warmth in the midst of of cold. Uh, You know, I once Googled what would happen if you dropped into space. You know, uh, the universe that we have is something like 91 billion light years across from end to end, circular and kind of flat like a tortilla, but it's massive. And almost every bit of the cosmos is lethal to human flesh. I mean, you out there, you've got maybe two minutes before you're dead, and that's if you open your mouth. Because if you don't open your mouth, then in the vacuum of space, the air in your lungs is going to expand and blow your lungs up. Uh, but, but understand, there is no warmth, and so you are going to freeze. And because there is no oxygen, you are not going to decay. So you've got a cosmos where 99.99999 and 8 billion more nines percent of it is lethal, terminal, and there's no heat. And so your frozen corpse is going to float like space junk through the cosmos possibly for millions of years. 
Now, there is one brief small spot in the cosmos where life is thriving, overabundant. A volcano can blow up, take out a whole island. Within a year, it's green again. Things are starting to grow. Life just keeps coming constantly here. Why is it that there can be life here? Well, there are a lot of reasons. But one really big important part is that uh, 93 million miles from here is a massive, superheated, gaseous fire that is burning uncontrollably, reacting nonstop, and it just so happens to be the perfect distance within which light and life and health and warmth can thrive. Without that sun, without that massive, burning, overwhelming fire, there would be no squirrels in the trees, there would be no trees, there would no be no smile on a child's face. There'd be no life. The Bible nowhere instructs us to think of God as an old man with a white beard. But he does tell us that he's a consuming fire. A fire indeed bigger than the sun. He says, don't bow down to that. That's not a big enough fire. He's a fire that's incredibly beautiful. Um, you know, my gas bill this, this past winter was astronomical because I, I got my gas fireplace working. And it produces absolutely no heat. It all goes up the chimney. Uh, But it's beautiful. And I can just sit in front of that. Me, two cats on pillows in front of the fireplace and just watch those flames constantly because fire is incredibly beautiful. It's intangible. You don't even know why you're drawn to it. We're like moths around a flame. You see a big fire or even a little fire and you just want to look at it. It's why we light candles when people come over. Uh, it's beautiful. And, and, you know, Psalm 27 speaks of the beauty of God. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. It's a consuming fire, limitless beauty, light, warmth. And, and that makes God's salvation an incredibly beautiful salvation. You know, when the Israelites were enslaved, Moses is saying, in Egypt, it was the Lord who came to their defense. When they were being whipped and beaten by their slave masters, when we were, we were hunched over and no one was taking pity on us in Egypt, who was it who came to our defense? Who was it who brought us out of slavery into freedom? Verse 24, God took one nation out of another by his miraculous signs, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, and his awesome deeds. And that was awesome and beautiful and amazing and stunning so long as you were an Israelite. But from the perspective of an Egyptian, it was hideous. It was violent. It was destructive. It was ugly. It was offensive. More than one theologian has commented on how your view of God in his anger, in his holiness, in his wrath, in his judgment, is very much filtered by your socioeconomic status. Among nations that are quite prosperous and quite wealthy in northern and western Europe and North America, the the, the notion of a wrathful God or a God who judges the enemies of his people is, is, is anathema. It's embarrassing. How would you believe such a thing like that? Because that's just a God who's going to rain on your parade. But among the world's poor, on poor continents, in poor countries, among poor people, among the oppressed, the notion of a God of judgment is the notion of a God who saves. You see, salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. And this is the God who in his beauty comes 
to the defense of his people. Like fire, God comes to their defense. I'll give you a story, an example. The setting is a French village in 1944 as uh, Nazi Europe is on the defensive against the Allies who are now closing in from from three different directions. And, And in this village, there was a young man, perhaps 14 years old, who had been caught. He had been caught writing anti-Nazi graffiti on buildings. And at that point, it had become, it was martial law. It was a capital offense. And all of the townspeople had been gathered in the square of this village. This young man, tied up, arms behind his back, being kicked, being punched, being beaten. All the people in the town having to watch it as the Nazi guards then raise their guns to execute this young man as his grandmother falls to her knees, weeping and crying and begging that she wouldn't lose her only grandchild. And then in the distance, in the midst of all of this, they begin hearing something that sounds like machinery. The thud of, of something mechanical, something, something metal, something loud. And, and as the entire village looks up to the crest of the hill, they see a line of American tanks coming their way. And as the Nazis then throw down their arms and run to their jeeps, they try to speed out of the town as an American tank takes them out and kills them. Meanwhile, the townspeople go and untie the young man who falls into the arms of his grandmother. Is it judgment or is it salvation? God is a consuming fire, friends. They're two sides of the same coin. He came to the defense of his people. He is a God who cannot be controlled. He cannot be manipulated. You can't bend him to bless your agenda. But he says, when my people cry out to me and I hear their cries, I will come as a consuming fire to display the beauty and the power of my salvation to defend the people I love. Fire is incredibly destructive, but incredibly beautiful. Uh, You can watch it burn. Uh, One Colorado photographer, David Baer, we've got some photos of his. uh, He's a Colorado photographer who who marvels in what he sees as the central contradiction of of humans' relationship with fire. He says, people come up here because they want to see a forest fire, and they're thinking of a little campfire because it's comforting and beautiful. But, But those who get close to a wildfire don't think it's such a good idea. He says it's beautiful and it's hypnotic, but it's also horrifying and gut-wrenching. Sometimes the same things are both gut-wrenching and hypnotic, both beautiful and horrifying. This is, this is how God reveals himself again and again throughout the history of redemption. When God showed himself to Abraham in Genesis 15, he showed himself in the middle of the night as a fire going between sets of animals. When Moses first encountered God in Exodus 3, God showed himself as fire, as a burning bush. At the theophany, the, the, the manifestation of God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, says the mountain of God was burning like a furnace. In Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. The fire that by night would lead the Israelites through the wilderness. John, uh, John the Baptist, even in Luke 3, when he sees Jesus and Jesus is baptized, he says that, that Jesus is one who would, be, who would baptize with what? With fire, with the Holy Spirit, with God himself. Paul, 
in 2 Thessalonians when he speaks of the relief that his people will experience when, when, when Christ returns. He speaks of the time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. Jesus, in the first chapter of Revelation, is seen as one whose eyes are burning fire. You know, with fire, you have to approach it very, very carefully because fire is incredibly beautiful, but it's incredibly destructive. Think of how God is to be approached only as he directs. I uh, Think of Numbers chapter 11. Again, in Numbers chapter 16, when, when the people were in open rebellion against God, and it says fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. Or you think of Nadab and Abihu, priests in the Old Testament, young priests who were playing games with God in the, in the temple. They were offering unauthorized pagan sacrifices. And it says that fire came out and consumed them. Fire is incredibly dangerous. You say, Greg, that's an Old Testament thing. Read about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, friends. It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. This is not something you can control. The Bible says our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. And even though you have to deal with this God, you can never, ever make a deal with this God because you can only approach him on his terms. Uh, You know, when I was not yet a Christian in high school, I remember reading about uh, uh, the Assyrian attack on on, uh, uh, Jerusalem, uh, ancient Near East. And, and I remember being fascinated because the Assyrian army, they were the world power. They, they had crushed every other city. And, uh, and then when they approached Jerusalem, and you understand this would be like a war between Liechtenstein and the former Soviet Union. It would not go well. You know, the, the, Israel was teeny. Assyria was the whole world. Uh, and, and when Sennacherib's army threatened Jerusalem, they, they, they surrounded the walls and, and began sending threatening letters into to the Jewish king. And uh, the Jewish king took these letters and they were mocking them and they were mocking their God. He was saying, listen, did the gods of all these other cities come to their defense? Did the gods of these other cities rescue them? You need to surrender or we're going to kill all of you. We'll destroy you completely. We'll enslave what's left of you because your God cannot save you. And the king took it and he knew he didn't have a leg to stand on. There was no strength. There's no power. There's nothing he could do. The walls of Jerusalem were not that high. They weren't that thick. They were running out of food. They, they, their, their, their water supply was present, but it wasn't indefinite. You know, they were in really, really bad shape, and they had no hope except the king took this letter, and he did what kings seldom did. He approached the temple itself, and he spread the letter out, this threatening letter out, in the temple before the throne of God himself. And all he said was, Lord, read over these documents and consider their threats. Friends, that night, 185,000 Assyrian warriors died in their sleep. You don't play with fire. God says, I'm a consuming fire. Incredibly beautiful, incredibly destructive. You say, Greg, that's not Jesus. Yeah, but, but look at how people experienced Jesus when they saw who he was, when they understood who he was. Think of Peter when he first encountered the holiness of Christ, when, 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 when Jesus had, had, had set him out in his boat and said, set down your, your nets, and he hadn't caught any fish all day. And then there were so many fish, his boat was sinking because it was loaded down with fish. He's like, what, what did he do? He looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, get away from me. Because I'm an unclean man. 
you think of, of the story of, of, of uh, the account of, of, of the, the Jesus calming the wind and the waves where they were on the Sea of Galilee and the waves were coming up over the ship and they were all going to die and they were freaking out and Jesus was asleep and they woke Jesus up and they said, Jesus, don't you care if we die? And Jesus simply said, peace, be still. And not only did the storm instantly stop, but all of that kinetic energy within the entire Sea of Galilee was diffused and it became flat as glass. And were they happy? They had been saved, praise the Lord. No, it says they were terrified. And they wondered what kind of man this is. You think of of Jesus at his transfiguration when he's revealed in glory as, as God the Son, the Eternal One, the author of life. They see Jesus blazing like fire and, and Moses and Elijah are there flanking him. And what do, the, what do the disciples say? They say, Lord, we need to build a tabernacle for you. And you think, oh, that's nice. You know, oh, we're going to put up a little tent so Jesus can hang out with his new friends. No. A tabernacle is a place where you put your God so his glory doesn't kill you. They were trying to build a containment vessel around Jesus lest they die because they saw him and no one can see God as he is and live. A consuming fire. Uh, you know, think of, uh, I've shared this story before. Imagine if you, you, you met a new friend, his name's Mark, seems like a really cool guy, you, you work together, you hang out some and so then one afternoon, you all decide it's Saturday. You're going to go down to Johnson's Shut-Ins State Park. How many people have been to Johnson's Shut-Ins? It's nice. There's some rocks, almost like a little cavern-y kind of thing. It's kind of nice. And, and so you get there, and Mark's there, and, he, and you see, wow, this is just so beautiful. It's like, a, it's like a little cavern. It's all rocky. It's nice. It's so lovely. And, and your friend Mark says, yeah, you want to see a real canyon? And he says something in a language you don't understand and moves his hands and suddenly the earth drops off right in front of you and it goes down about 17 miles and a cavern opens up 40 miles across and this is like 20 times the size of the Grand Canyon right there at your feet and you look at him and you see in the blacks of his eyes the spiral of the cosmos going around and the question you have to answer is this. Do you get back in the car with him? You know, when you understand what God is, it's, it's kind of terrifying. It's, it's, it's like the moths around the flame where you're drawn to it, but if you get too close, the fear is it might destroy you. Now, how does this line up with uh, certain contemporary notions about God, cultural notions about God? Well, there is in American culture, distinct from Christianity, both a traditional conservative God and a traditional liberal God. The traditional conservative God is, is powerful, but not very beautiful. You have kind of a judge and lawgiver who provides a moral basis for civil society. He sets everything in motion. Ultimately, he judges in the coming age, which gives meaning to our concepts of justice, that good and evil actually do exist. And, and this God may be good, but does this God melt your heart? You know, does this distant lawgiver move your heart with compassion? Does this God move you to tears? Is he beautiful beyond your ability to bear? Is he so attractive so as to change your heart from the inside out? Of course he's not. This traditional conservative God is not beautiful. The traditional liberal God, by contrast, is, in, is, 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 is not incredibly destructive like fire. 
The traditional liberal God may exist as a sort of spirit of benevolence that's at work in the world, who loves everybody and accepts everybody and never commands you to obey anything, never contradicts your desire, never sits as a judge over your culture, never tells you where you have to change. And that God, uh, it's not scary. That God doesn't judge anybody. That God never gets angry. That God never makes anybody tremble because he's not a consuming fire. And yet the biblical God is both. He is a consuming fire, incredibly beautiful, but incredibly destructive. This is a God that you and I have to deal with. See, neither the traditional conservative nor liberal God can measure up. The real God shows himself as a fiery God. And if this entity actually exists, then you and I have to deal with this, friends. This infinite, terrifying being that you can never control is the one who created you, to whom we all owe allegiance and honor and obedience. He's the one who gets to tell us what we do with our lives, how we spend our money, who we sleep with, what kind of choices we make, whether we enter into community with other believers or whether we try to do it on our own. He's the one who gets to to tell us how we treat the poor. He's the one who, who gets to tell us how we're supposed to respond when we feel injured or wronged. He gets to tell us all this because of who he is and who he made us to be. A God for whom our hearts were made, consuming fire, incredibly beautiful, incredibly destructive, with whom we have to deal. So, how can you deal with a consuming fire? The miracle, as the Israelites experienced it, is described in this passage is that they did indeed encounter a consuming fire. And the miracle, friends, is that they did not die. Verse 33, Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? How can you get close to the beauty and the warmth of fire of God? without being destroyed by it? How do you deal with a consuming fire? The irony is this, friends, because we're not just told here that God is consuming fire. The irony is that your greatest hope and my greatest hope to get close to the beauty and warmth of God without being destroyed lies in God's jealousy. Did you pick it up? Verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, comma, a jealous God. Bible uses the term jealousy very differently than we normal modern than we moderns normally use it. Uh, we typically use the word jealousy as a synonym for the word envy. But when you envy someone something, you're envious about something that is not rightly, rightfully yours. It's a sign of discontentment. Jealousy, however, can be used to to speak the things that are rightfully yours. We think of, for example, a jealous spouse when somebody tries to steal your spouse. Uh, If you were to go into a bar with your wife and, uh, you know, some other guy were to come up to her with way too much cologne on, getting way too physical with her and starts hitting on her, if you're not jealous at that point, if you don't butt in, if you don't feel a little bit of anger, friends, then that's a sign that you do not love your wife. Because jealousy is is just love in pain. You know, um, a jealous boyfriend, you know, obviously 
we only experience jealousy in its fallen form. A jealous boyfriend is usually uh, jealous for his own sake, not for her sake, because, you know, he wants to possess you and has some internal insecurity that makes him manipulative toward you. Uh, even at our best, we often, uh, 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 our, our love is often for our own sake, and so our jealousy is often fallen. But, but with God, if you can imagine dealing with a being of infinite love, pure love, a God who has no unmet needs, a God who has no internal insecurities. What if there was a pure love at the center of the universe? That love is what we have in God. And a jealous God is a God who is passionately committed to protecting something, something that he's unwilling to lose, something that is rightfully his own. And this is where we get into talk about the covenant of God. A covenant is is, is a relationship, but it's more than a relationship. A covenant is a contract, but it's, it's more than a contract. It's a, a permanently binding relationship in which two parties have, have bound themselves eternally together. It's, it's the closest thing we have is, is the marriage union uh, between a husband and a wife. But what this means is, is, is that God is very concerned to protect his relationship with you. Verse 23, the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. His jealousy is because if you're a Christian, he's in relationship with you. And, and his jealousy means that he's not willing to lose you to some other God. He's not willing to let you go too far down the path of idolatry, of bowing down to something else and worshiping it as if it's God because it's going to destroy you. And he loves you and he's not willing to lose you because you're in covenant with him. And his jealousy is his love aroused and in pain, unwilling to lose you. That's our hope. Uh, Becky Pippert says it this way. Uh, speaking about that anger that can be part of jealousy. She says, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. The ultimate form of hate is indifference. See, if you're a Christian, God's not indifferent. He cares for you. His love is that of a, a jealous God. It's, it's something we see, for example, with a parent. If a parent of an adult child sees, and some of you know this better than I can even ever describe it, when a parent watches as their adult child descends into an addiction, and they watch as, 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 as every other love is, is snuffed out in the name of the addiction. They, they see their child becoming more deceitful, more enslaved, more hopeless, more manipulative, strangling all of their relationships and all of their love and their hope and their life and their future. And that parent looks on that adult child with absolute love. And yet that parent looks upon the addiction with absolute burning, holy hatred for what it's doing to the one that they love. The hate is not because of an absence of love. Hate is because of the presence of love, a jealous love that is unwilling to lose someone that they care about very deeply the love of a jealous God, jealous to protect his covenant relationship with you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Problem of Pain, says, you asked for a loving God. Well, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked is present, but not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious civil magistrate nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. No, the consuming fire himself, 
the love that made the world's persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for his dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for his child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. Jealousy been described as as love aroused and in pain and we have a, a jealous God whose heart breaks when you turn from him a God who feels pain and who feels loss to turn from him is it's not to break his law so much as to break his heart because he is a God of never-ending love whose passion to regain you is not going to be quenched the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God And because of that jealousy, if you have Jesus, friends, you will certainly be saved. How can you deal with a consuming fire, friends? Look at Jesus. I mean, we should have expected him to come and do what he did. Look at the language that the Bible uses in this passage to describe you as God's covenant people. Verse 20 says, Moses says, As for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Now, a man's inheritance in the ancient world was his treasure, his most treasured possession. Could it be that God looks at you as something that is so beautiful and so satisfying and so desirable that God would be willing to give up everything in order to gain it. It's what we should expect. If he says you're his inheritance, that means you're his treasure. You picture a child's eyeballs on Christmas morning. They, they step one step after another down the steps, down the carpet, squishy down on the ground floor, and, and they see the, 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 the Christmas tree that's all lit up, and they see the train going around it, and they see all of the packages in their eyeballs. They get bigger, and they get bigger. And they're wider and wider. And the Bible is saying that those are the eyes of God when he looks upon you, his people, his treasure, his inheritance, the thing he is unwilling to give up, the thing for which he will sacrifice everything else in order to gain you because he delights in you. And his jealousy is unwilling to let go of you because you are his great unending love. Could it be that God looks at you as something so beautiful and so satisfying and so desirable that he would give up everything to gain it? Because in the fullness of time, friends, that's exactly what he did. Remember the disciples asked Jesus about the fire of God when they came to the Samaritan village. We, we read it just earlier. Inhabitants had rejected Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 9. And the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, they, they've just dissed you. They've insulted you. They've turned you away. They said, we don't want your salvation, Jesus. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And then Jesus rebuked them. Now you think, that's a really stupid question to ask of Jesus. But it's not a stupid question to ask of Jesus. Because they had just witnessed the transfiguration of Christ. They had just seen Jesus blazing as the glory of God himself. And right next to him was who? Right next to him was Elijah. You remember Elijah, those of you who who grew up in the church. You remember all those stories about him. Uh, You know, recall 1 Kings chapter 1 when the king sent the captain of the guard with 50 soldiers to go and capture Elijah. 
What did Elijah do? He called down fire from God, and he burned and killed 50 soldiers. And then the king sent 50 more men, and he called down fire from heaven and burned them too. And the disciples had just seen Jesus with Elijah. They'd just seen that he's the glory of the Lord. They connected the dots. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, Jesus was different from Elijah. Jesus, too, was confronted by the captain of the guard. Jesus, too, was confronted by a company of hostile soldiers. And Jesus healed an ear and proceeded willingly to go with them to be beaten and stripped naked, whipped and scourged, with nails pounded into his bones. And upon them, he called down no fire from heaven. So what happened to the fire? In the Luke passage... Luke specifies that Jesus had set out resolutely toward Jerusalem with the intention of going to his death. In Luke 12, Jesus explained it this way. He said it's a Hebrew couplet. I, well, Greek, but Hebrew. Uh, I, I, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it's completed. Now, understand, Jesus didn't say that in Greek. It's recorded for us in Greek. Jesus was Jewish. He was probably speaking Aramaic, a Semitic language and Semitic poetry. Uh, A couplet like this is typically two statements that are saying the same thing. The second one might be altering it slightly. So don't hear Jesus saying two things. First thing he's saying is that I am going to bring down the fire of God and I wish it was already done. And then he restates it differently Uh, What does he say? What's the second line in the couplet? I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's completed. He's speaking of the cross. Jesus is saying, I am going to bring down the fire of God, but I am going to bring it down on myself, not on the Samaritan villagers, not on the captain of the guard, not on the soldiers, not on the Israelites, not on me, not on you. The Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace. Jesus entered the furnace to be consumed so that you might approach the consuming fire to see its incredible beauty, to feel its warmth, and yet not be consumed, not be destroyed. The miracle here in ancient Israel is that God appeared as fire and they didn't die. Keller says it this way, God was so mad at sin that he had to come and die for us, but he was so attracted to us that he was glad to die for us. The jealous love of God came to full satisfaction on the cross, a consuming fire who consumes himself so that sinners like us can approach his beauty, bask in his warmth, and yet not be consumed. Friends, it is only through Jesus that the consuming fire can be approached through the one who is consumed by it for our sake. I've got a picture here. This is Emmanuel Mensa. He immigrated to the United States from the Cape Coast of Ghana a number of years ago. He attended DeWitt Clinton High School before enrolling in the borough of Manhattan Community College, City University in New York. After that, he was off to boot camp. And then last December, 
As a soldier in the U.S. Army National Guard, he completed his basic training at Fort Lee, Virginia. And in an essay there, he spoke of his sense of calling that God had put him on this earth to protect civilians and to save lives. And after basic, he went home to New York for Christmas. Last December 28th, while home in New York for the holidays, Mensa noticed a fire spreading out of control in the fifth-story Belmont apartment building at 2363 Prospect Avenue in the Bronx. According to city records, the building had six open code violations, including for defective smoke detectors and defective carbon monoxide detectors. It would become the city's deadliest blaze in 25 years. And when Emmanuel saw the fire spreading rapidly through the building, it just went up so fast. He rushed throughout the building, waking people up, alerting them to the danger. He found one husband and wife who were trapped in a stairwell. They were unable to escape through a wall of flames. You can almost imagine the stairs are burning. The plaster is collapsing. Windows are shattering because of the intense heat, only to pull in more oxygen to fuel this inferno. The couple looked at one another as they they realized their escape was cut off. They're desperate to be saved from the disaster that had ensnared them. And through the smoke, they feel this young soldier grabbing them from behind and pulling them backward into a room. Mensa guided them through a maze of smoke and flames to a fire escape in the back of the building and once outside in safety as they climbed down the iron rungs to the earth, Mensa darted back into a burning building. From the outside, the gathering crowd could hear a woman somewhere in an upper, upper floor screaming from inside, we're going to die in here. By then, the stairwell had become a chimney. As at least three different times, Mensa stormed back into the blaze to assist those who had no other way of escaping the flames. You can, you can almost hear his younger sister screaming at him, Emmanuel, you can't run inside a burning building. You can't save others. It's certain death. But in he rushed, holding his breath, lowering people down through windows one after another to safety. Yet he never made it out that fourth time. His remains were later found on the top floor of the building where he had helped others escape to safety. A young man from a far-off land came and helped others. He sacrificed his life to the flames so that others might face the flames and live. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. Only when he did it for you, he wasn't doing it for a neighbor He was doing it for an enemy. Imagine the person inside that burning building was the one who had stolen his wife. That's what it means when the Bible says that when we were his enemies, Christ died for us in order to make us his friends. He is the one who stepped into the flame, and yet the fire that Jesus stepped into was more than a burning building. It was more than any human being has ever experienced. It's the the fire of the wrath and judgment of God against all that is shameful, all that is evil, all that is broken, all that is unclean, all of our idolatrous rebellions, all of my sin. Jesus took that fire and he let it consume him completely so that you and I might approach God, a consuming fire not to be toyed with, but approach him as a friend who loves us completely and who is not willing to lose you. He's willing to give up everything, even his son, in order to capture your heart. 
Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that you have given us salvation in Christ. Lord, I pray for all those who don't yet know you, who haven't experienced your grace. Lord, I pray that they would flee to you while there's still time because you, Lord, are a consuming fire. We owe you all honor, but we're broken. We're damaged, Lord. You know our weakness. And yet you've given us your son so that you'll never lose us. And so we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, this cup and this bread, that you administer the good news to us that Jesus died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to you. Amen.